hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, we tackle a couple summertime threats to the farm, pests, and hailstorms. We talk with Dan Schweers of A1 Mist Sprayers about controlling insects and other pests, and then we talk with Damon Johnson of Farmer's Edge about that company's hail detection technology. And then we hear from U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue and SVG Ventures' John Hartnett about how technology and private sector startups are the way forward for agriculture. And then we take you to Tennessee to talk music with singer-songwriter Thomas Gabriel, the eldest grandson of the man in black, Johnny Cash. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, it's almost summertime. We've got the warmer weather here, and with that uh, comes pests, bugs, rodents, all kinds of different pests that are going to be plaguing your farm or ranch. And so I wanted to bring on Dan Schweers, who's with A1 Mist Sprayers out of Ponca, Nebraska, part of Valley Industries out of Painesville, Minnesota. And these guys have uh, mist sprayers that use high-velocity airstreams instead of water to transport chemicals to areas that are being targeted for spraying. And, Dan, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, Brent. So I uh, understand you guys are staying plenty busy these days. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty crazy year with uh, being hot in some places and being wet in other places. So there's been a wide variety of different uh, insects coming up between flies and mosquitoes in some locations and grasshoppers and uh, armyworms coming up in others. And aphids and your beans and soybeans have been a big problem for us in our area in the northern uh, northeast corner of Nebraska. And uh, we, we should say here that you guys have applications that, that cover just about everything from poultry barns and broiler houses to uh, dairies and uh, even row crops and vegetables and vine crops and uh, it really runs the gamut. Yeah, uh, literally every type of agricultural spraying you can think of, we get our fingers into. Um, being it's um, spraying for bugs on um, pumpkins and uh, watermelon and vine crop to uh, fungicides on that same crop, anywhere from spraying for any sort of leaf hoppers or aphids on soybeans. Um, yeah, we, we hit them all. And one of, one of the interesting things about uh, the, the uh, sprayers that you have, they are either truck-mounted or uh, tractor-mounted and uh, can be driven by engine or, or PTO. Uh, break it down for us. T- tell us a bit about uh, uh, the technology behind these. We have seven different models of sprayers, uh, being three different types of PTO units to a uh, four different types of engine-driven units. We can fit any any size tractor from... 35 horse on up and with the capability of spraying between 50 to 140 foot our engine driven units you know we make them small enough where they fit onto a um, atv or four-wheeler and that wouldn't will spray 50 foot and then we make them that fit in the back of side-by-sides or in the back of the big commercial units will fit in the back of the pickup trucks or flatbeds where you can spray up to 100 foot and 
big 100-gallon tanks, and you can do literally every application you can think of, uh, feedlots for uh, fly control, your swine confinements, poultry. Uh, a, lot, a lot of poultry units use our uh, three-points for going in there and spraying around the place for uh, spraying herbicide around the place to keep the weeds down. And then you can go in there and spray uh, sanitizers and disinfectants after they clean and, uh, and move the chickens out. So there's just a wide variety of things you can do with a mist sprayer. It's not just, it's just not one type of sprayer. It is a every type of sprayer built into one. And one of the appealing things about the sprayers that you guys have is the fact that they can uh, shoot pretty high up into the air and as a result can deposit a chemical on the underside of leaves being able to uh, be more efficient than just putting droplets on top of leaves. Yes, that, that is that is correct. Uh, a mist sprayer in general is 60% more efficient than a boom sprayer. We use one-tenth a boom sprayer does. And the reason why we do that is we're using air as a carrier instead of water. And then the other reason is we get 30 to 40% of that chemical on the bottom half of the leaf. And so we're getting 99% coverage all the way around whatever you're spraying. So if you were to stand out 80 foot away and I were to light my sprayer up and spray on you, You'd be soaking wet, head to toe, front and back, left and right, however you want to say it. The only thing I can't cover is the bottom of your feet. So what are some of the common questions that that folks are approaching you with these days? We get a lot of people asking for help with fly control. Uh, Flies are a major problem in any livestock industry, be cattle, hogs, sheep, horses, anything. Flies are a big are a big issue and we work with a bunch of different people for good spraying applications and we help you figure out a good spraying routine and to help help you figure out what chemicals to use for spraying for flies so if you get on the right and correct spraying program we can get rid of 80 percent of your fly population that's just incredible when you're talking uh in a feedlot or something like that not being able to walk outside versus being able to have a barbecue outside and uh what you're doing here isn't just guesswork you guys have worked with universities and with the chemical companies uh, to come up with solutions that really are optimum for the conditions yes um we've been doing uh, well i personally have been working with uh, a1 misperries for over 20 years and we worked with uh, Dr. David Boxler. Uh, there is a Dr. Mike Katenge, who's a livestock entomologist, and uh, he lives for killing flies. He does, and when you buy a sprayer from us, you get not only his knowledge, but our knowledge on as far as spraying flies and mosquitoes. And we uh, we help you figure out all these recipes. It's, we've been doing this for, uh, the company's been around for 40 plus years, and we can really help you figure all this stuff out. It's We have tried and tested formulas for getting rid of them. It's not, oh, this chemical works or that chemical works. No, we, we can tell you exactly how to get rid of it. When you mentioned earlier in the interview here that this has been a crazy, crazy year, uh, one of the things outside of just spraying for, for bugs and pests that uh, uh, these sprayers do, you guys also uh, are able to uh, spray for uh, COVID-19 to uh, do disinfecting. Yes, yes, we can. Uh, as far as spraying inside of buildings, we're not so much into that. But when you're talking uh, playgrounds, ball fields, 
and locations like that where you want to have a group setting, we, yeah, we can go around. We've been uh, doing a little bit of uh, spraying uh, disinfectants and uh, sanitizers on the playgrounds and park systems and stuff like that. I think where the, the kids run around and want to have fun and stuff like that because kids got to have fun. Yeah. And everybody's got to be able to get outside and do stuff. And the best way to do that is disinfect everything. Our, we disinfect the um, local school here in town. Um, just we just drive around and spray it, and that way we do that. We do that once every so often, and take care of the issue for him in town. Well, I tell you what; these are definitely some interesting times. And whether you got uh, COVID uh, as a concern, or or flies, or grasshoppers, or mosquitoes, or whatever it might be this time of year, uh, you check in with these folks here at A One Mist Sprayers. Uh, you can check them out at mistsprayers.com. Again, that's mistsprayers.com. And, uh, Dan, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about all this today. I really appreciate the call. And uh, if you guys have any questions, please don't hesitate to give us a call. We, uh, we're we always happy to help. And what's that number they can call you at? 877-924-2474. All right. Again, uh, that's 877-924-2474. That's A1 Mist Sprayers, and they're in Ponca, Nebraska. Uh, give them a holler. Also, uh, mistsprayers.com. Well, next up on the program this week, we just talked about uh, controlling pests and bugs, but another concern this time of year is weather. And so I wanted to bring in Damon Johnson. He is with Farmer's Edge. They're based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but have offices in Lincoln, Nebraska, as well as a presence in Russia, Brazil, and Ukraine. And one of the things that they have going on right now is a new hail detection program. You know, uh, Farmer's Edge is an agriculture technology company that provides grower solutions that help them manage every aspect of the growing process from planting and spraying to fertilizer application, scouting and field and harvest maintenance. And that's just scratching the surface. But they really also help you monitor weather conditions in real time and Damon, this uh, uh, hail detection system here is a game changer. Yeah, it is. No, good morning. Uh, great to be here. It's um, it, it really is. It's we think it's the first of its kind. Um, yeah, for, for very simple, um, in, given the fact that you know, we're really essentially covering covering three modes of what a hail storm brings. You know, in terms of the, the reaction to it, so it's detecting that storm, being notified of it, um, and, and then the reporting of of the of the actual damage from you know, in terms of severity from minor to, you know, catastrophic type of things. So, you know, that probably the word, you know, the term game changer gets overused in a lot of industries. Um, but, you know, the, this one is, it, it's a first of its kind and we're really, really excited about it. So tell me a bit about how it works. Yeah, we've got an outstanding team of, uh, of innovative people here at, at Farmer's Edge, you know, right from our, our CEO, who's, you know, he's a, he's a pure visionary who sees these things and, you know, where the opportunity is. Um, you know, it really came about, you know, really from consultation with, uh, you know, definitely farmers, um, definitely, you know, industry being, you know, the, you know, the, the insurance companies and the agents um, that were looking for more innovation in this space. Um, so, I mean, what, what it's bringing is, you know, first of all, is our partnership with, with IBM and their you know, incredible ability with their weather analytics, uh, not just from a forecasting and historical analysis basis, but also with severe weather detection. So that that was key here in, you know, really layering that into our existing platform, uh, you know, which in this case uses 
uh, our broad um, private weather network of installed weather stations right in the farmer's field, as well as our incredible ability with, with satellite imagery um, that we're using from a number of different sources to, um, you know, essentially is that, you know, backcasting that damage over, over an affected field, um, you know, bringing a level of analytics that has been desired, um, that has been difficult to develop in terms of using a satellite image to, you know, detect not only the severity of the storm, but the actual effect it's had on a field or a number of producers' fields in a certain area. So, you know, that's really what comes with it is, is those, those three layers, but, you know, very, very simply, you know, bringing that back to the farmer and to simultaneously to the insurance agent through one point of reference and through one platform. We're using, you know, remote sensing technology in, in all these cases. So, I mean, the, the first component is that, you know, IBM, which, you know, world-renowned company in, in many spaces, no less than this, that, um, you know, using the, their, their radar and their analytics, um, but then also, you know, the, the, the next two pieces of, of, um, of monitoring are coming, coming through uh, weather stations that we're putting directly in, in, into the farmer's field that the benefit created through that is that we're not relying on publicly available sources of data. And we're seeing this in a number of different you know, modes and methodologies within you know, agriculture specifically where we work where, um, you know, products like this have been tried before. Um, but the downside is that, you know, publicly available or government weather stations are, you know, 15, 18, 30 miles away from, you know, where the a actual activity happened. And what that's doing is you're, you're taking away, um, you know, time and distance creates error in those things. So, you know, bringing that data collection as close to the field as possible um, is, you know, step number one. And then the satellite images, um, of course, where we're, you know, we literally there's the satellites going around the earth every single day capturing an image. We're receiving those in this case on a hail damage field um, where we're also referencing we see damage. We also know that our weather station told us that we saw a sudden drop in temperature from, uh, you know, using a Canadian Celsius terms of, you know, 32 degrees Celsius down to 18 in a matter of a few minutes would be a strong indicator uh, that there was probably a hailstorm in the area. So it's it's layering it layering in those attributes. That's, that's what's bringing you know, that a lot of specificity to this as compared to kind of more broadly based, area-based, regionally based analytics. This is a, a problem that, that costs the industry, uh, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars every year in, in claims. And uh, it really dogs a lot of producers who uh, uh, wind up having to make that decision whether they're going to uh, see if a crop can regrow or or have to uh, totally replant and, and a lot of times that's a tough decision to make it, it, it's very difficult and it's like i said before it's a it's a subjective decision and those are the hardest decisions to make because you're going off of a, a gut feel in a sense and, and you're going from a you know relying on history and, and you know what you've seen before in relation to what you're seeing today and what was the impact of doing or not doing something and, and, and you know gut feel and experience is incredibly valuable uh, but bringing some innovation over top of that with, you know, some, some accuracy and some objectivity to just help support that decision. Um, because, you know, hail insurance is, it, it's a it's a fantastic product to have. It, it, it's, you know, a, a must have in many senses, but the, the outcome of having to, you know, go through the claims management process at times can be 
you know, lengthy and arduous and, 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 you know, some would describe the process as painful just because you're, you're kind of, you're relying on subjectivity and, and, and some assumptions as compared to, you know, layer, layering in some, some science and some data over, over top of it. And, and, you know, adding that into this traditional process, I think is going to create some, uh, some real stickiness uh, for, 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 for the product, like the, the ability of technology within the hail insurance space. This is all really fascinating stuff here. And if folks want to know more about it, uh, where, where can they go to learn more? So on all of our social media channels, find us at Farmer's Edge. Um, uh, specifically, email us at insurance at farmersedge.ca and find us on the internet at www.farmersedge.ca. We'll go give these guys a look and check out this technology here because it's uh, vital to helping you understand, uh, you know, just uh, just the impacts a hailstorm can have on a crop, and it can save you time and and money and uh, a lot of headaches along the way. So, Damon, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brent. Well, next up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, last week, U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue joined John Hartnett, founder and CEO of SVG Ventures, for a chat on the future of agriculture technology. SVG is an investment technology and advisory firm that partners with organizations on strategy, innovation, and global expansion. SVG Ventures Thrive is made up of top agriculture, food, and technology corporations, universities, and investors. They have a community of more than 2,500 startups from 90 countries and provide a platform for entrepreneurs to scale globally. I wanted to bring you a few outtakes from their conversation. Innovation and uh, uh developments are really the key to uh, the future in agriculture and really throughout our society. It's interesting to me that this pandemic, uh, even after that period of time, has taught us even more about the fragility and the importance of our food supply chain. I think many people I know here in the United States probably had not thought that much about our food supply chain because we're blessed with an abundance and typically in our grocery stores and retail outlets, and even in our restaurants, the menu choices and the choices among the shelves are the biggest challenge we have in trying to pick which one of those things that we want. So uh, we consider ourselves very blessed as a nation to experience that. But I think many people here saw the, uh, the situation of those things just don't magically appear on those shelves, but they are the, uh, the network of a very integrated, sophisticated, even synchronized food supply chain that uh, that puts food on our tables for our families and uh, how will we continue that we've seen the potential threat that really couldn't be contemplated in any way you might know i think the world knew that we had some real challenges in our meat production supply chain with an inordinate amount of affection in our workers our meat pack workers uh, in that regard that we had to work uh, very very uh, carefully regarding and the good news is we're back up to about 90 to 95% production in those facilities. So that was the important. You can imagine if the, uh, if the shelves in the United States became bare, it could have created quite a panic, not only here, but around the world that uh, we heard from our uh, importers around the world of how important getting these uh, plants back up was uh, to them as well because of the export of U.S. products around the world. Innovation really being the key. The world is the challenges are there. The world population is growing. The need to do more with less is there. The productivity gains that we've seen here in the United States over the last uh, 
really since 1930. It's really almost about four times, uh, close to four times of productivity. And we see the various things that happened during that period of time from the 1930s all the way through the middle uh, 2015s there uh, over the technology gains that we've had. So I would submit to you and your listeners that uh, in the United States, we're actually doing more with less, which means a more sustainable production, less environmental footprint than we had even back in the other days. And I think uh, while we see many people really wanting to go backwards in what I would consider a style of the 1950s, I don't believe that will feed the world. And I don't believe it's going to be environmentally friendly because it's going to take many more acres that uh, to do the same production that we're doing today. So that's really the, the, the real uh, need for agricultural innovation. We think USDA can be a convener. We understand that most of these ideas, frankly, are gonna come from the private sector. And we're blessed globally to have some great thinkers and innovators. We wanna be conveners. USDA puts a lot of money into research, basic research, applied research, but much of that work in the finishing product uh, certainly comes from the private sector. And we are seeing uh, just a wonderful startup. Many of your startups in this space are out there that have different viewpoints, maybe not really tainted by the way we've always done things, but understanding how we do have to do things differently to achieve the kind of goals that we're talking about here, which is increasing U.S. agricultural production by 40% while cutting the environmental footprint of U.S. agriculture in half just by 2050 when those 10 billion people show up. So those are those are good aspirational stretch goals. We think based on the trajectory of what we've done since 1930, they are attainable. And uh, we're gonna work very hard to hold ourselves accountable to that. The research is a real key. We need to do more, not less, and uh, in the food supply chain and the, and the business of producing uh, food. The different programs that we'll do between uh, uh, the USDA and our private sector partners and the private sector economy is very important. You've got to be nimble and you've got to, you've got to kind of break the mold. You cannot uh, act is the way you always have. I think that's why it's very, very important for you bringing uh, really disruptors to the marketplace uh, mm -hmm. in the ag innovation agenda that we need. We've got to have people from the outside. I'm, I'm just thrilled that uh, Silicon Valley and other uh, large deep thinking investors are now uh, thinking more about the food sector as in a very important one. And I think the pandemic, fortunately, that's one of the silver linings. It's helped us think more about the reliability of the food supply and what it will take, whether it's vertical growing, urban farming, or the kind of agendas that we do from satellite, using satellites for productivity, precision agriculture, rural connectivity, all those kind of things that uh, I think nim being nimble and agility and the willingness to change and to make uh, to make uh, variations and waivers in your ordinary regulatory processes was critical in our survival uh, of this uh, this pandemic. I know that you know from the private sector, from venture capital investment in the whole food and agriculture sector, it you know investment has increased from you know maybe five years ago it was at two billion dollars venture capital investment and last year 2019 you know it increased to 19 billion um which is a significant growth in terms of investment in the future uh, and future technologies which is great to see you know private sector kind of stepping up 
uh, you know, driving that forward. So, I mean, obviously this is going to take a major public-private partnership, you know, to unleash, you know, global innovators, entrepreneurs, and, and major corporations to solve some of these challenges. And um, I know I'm, I'm delighted that we're able to be part of, 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 of supporting these goals. And, you know, we're going to launch our Thrive Global Challenge um, really to focus on supporting these goals worldwide. And we're going to challenge every entrepreneur every corporation uh, to come up with technologies that can help us achieve these goals in terms of doing more with less and, and also um, driving sustainability uh, you know, across our, our, our supply chain. We do know, well, well you know, government-sponsored, university-sponsored research is really important. Uh, we know that many of these innovative ideas come from the private sector. There's a, a great opportunity and a great incentive in the private sector to design that and I think the investment that you talked about is really encouraging from 2 billion to 19 billion. I think all over the world we have we know that we have labor challenges in agriculture. We've got to figure out how to do things with uh, uh, with less less. We have an aging population of farm workers here in the United States and I understand that's pretty typical across the world so uh, uh, just fewer and fewer people want to do some of the hard, hard work of production agriculture, and we've got to figure out. So I expect that many of the, uh, uh, the technology and the, of robotics and other types of sensors and uh, other things will be part of the future of agriculture we see regarding using optics and sensor technology that we know satellite technology now from a predictability perspective uh, can, be, can give us quantum leaps in agricultural production. Well, this is a very important topic, and we'll have more outtakes next week on episode 59, including a discussion on forming public-private partnerships to develop technologies that will move agriculture into the future. We want to thank the folks at SVG Ventures and the USDA for allowing us to sit in on this chat. Well, now it's time to head to the music side of the house here on Fast Line Fast Track, and this week I have a really special treat for you. Thomas Gabriel is a recording artist trying to make a name for himself in the music business, and he also just happens to be the eldest grandson of the man in black, Johnny Cash. His style is best described as a fusion of country, Americana, and rock, and if you haven't heard it before now, I guarantee you, you'll leave here as a fan. Thomas, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, thanks for having me. Man, I tell you what, this interview is about a year and a half in the making because we started this thing out in January 2019, and right about the time that we did, uh, you were one of the first two or three people I wanted to have on. You guys hit the road, headed out west, and man, I tell you what, it seems like we were gone pretty much all of 2019 and into 2020. Actually, we were. We, were, uh, we did a three-month nonstop tour all the way across the west, came back out east, and went back out west, so it's, it's like we weren't going to come back. That's what it felt like. <laughs> What, what did you learn from that tour? Oh, um, I learned how we can go through several vehicles uh, really, really quick. And uh, <laughs> learned how if you don't love who you're with, you can you can hate everybody before it's all over and done. I mean, we had a great time, though. We met a lot of really great people and uh, made a lot of friends. And and uh, that's I mean, that's what I'm in it for. You know, just um, um, I, if I could stay out west, I would. If you're tuning in, I wanted to get a ton of dirt on Johnny Cash and the behind the scenes stuff. 
that's probably not going to be this show. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about uh, uh, Thomas's background just to uh, kind of set the scene here and let you know where he came from. But there's been plenty written about the Cash family and uh, folks can go out and investigate that on their own. But I will pull a plug here for uh, a documentary that uh, recently came out uh, and hit Amazon Prime uh, called uh, My Darling Vivian, which focuses on your grandmother, uh, Vivian Roberto, right. produced by your brother, Dustin Tittle, and uh, directed by Nashville filmmaker uh, Matt Riddle Hoover. Uh, your grandmother has been portrayed in many different ways and many different things. But uh, what was it like to see her to uh, story told uh, from the perspective of your mother, Kathy, and her sisters? You know, I um, it, it, it was wonderful. I My grandmother was my best friend. You know, she was uh, she was a wonderful woman. And and, you know, the, the sad part about it is you never really heard much about her. And she, you know, maybe she even really liked it that way, but she never got any credit for all the hard work she did. And uh, raising my, my mother and, and her three sisters, you know, walk the line was, um, um, you know, it made, it made her seem like she was, uh, well, quite frankly, a bitch. You know, she she was uh, she was not. She was she was such a wonderful, warm, supportive woman. And, uh, you know, the thing about it is, is none of like, for instance, I walked the line, even left one of my aunts out. You know, he had four daughters with my grandmother. You know, not only did they paint her like that, but they even went as far as leaving one of my aunts out, uh, an entire human being's life out of the movie, you know I mean? Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, um, for so long, that's all people had to go on. And then my grandmother came out with a book called I Walked the Line, Past Tense. I Walked the Line. And um, and that was, uh, if you know, it, it painted a whole different picture from Walk the Line. And then the documentary was just fantastic i literally i i saw it twice and i saw it through blurry eyes all the time you know it's, what kind of feedback have you gotten from others who have seen it everybody that i've spoken to has loved it um i think that knowing the relationship that i had with my grandmother if they didn't they probably wouldn't say it to me uh, did, did <laughs> it, you feel like it opened some eyes yeah yeah i did um you know um my biggest thing was uh, my aunt Roseanne, you know, she's uh, now she's uh, she's such a um, a wise woman. She's a lot like my grandma grandfather was. And for her to tell, you know, kind of uh, narrate the, the story was, I think, probably one of the best parts. Mm -hmm. So your mom was the second oldest of Johnny and Vivian's four daughters. And mm -hmm. she was 16 when she had you. So you spent a lot of time uh, with your grandfather in June. What was that experience like? Because it came at a time when there were a lot of demands on both of them. Right. Well, um, it was um, it was fun. I mean, I, I I had a great childhood. I didn't realize until later um, how just how, you know, uncon unconventional that was and how unstable that was, you know, and and. Uh, I don't have anything to really compare it to, you know, I, mm -hmm. I know that when we would come home and I would hang out with my friends and everything that their life was extremely different from mine. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't have any regrets. I, I had a wonderful time. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm grateful for my experiences and, and all those years, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's great. I don't really know what else to say about it. Yeah. Were you cognizant of really what it was that was going on around you as, as far as uh, the stardom and the fact that uh, uh, that they were in, in the spotlight and under the microscope? <laughs> I just thought they had a lot of friends. 
I just thought they knew everybody. You know, we'd go everywhere we went. They, they knew who Johnny was and they knew who June was. Um, he didn't know them though. And I always thought that was strange. I remember, I remember being small and we were at a, at a uh, circus and we're watching, and I've told this story before, but we were, I'm sitting there watching the circus go on and uh, the elephants and all that. And, and everybody's lined up around the uh, tent waiting to get his autograph. And I thought that was so strange. I'm like, why do they want to talk to my grandfather when we've got this show going on? But, you know, he knows all these people, how annoying, you know, but the older I got and, you know, we, uh, we were, yeah, it was, they, and it turns out he did have a lot of friends and I'm starting to meet the, the same things happening to me. You know, I'm meeting a lot of my friends that I didn't know, you know, I'm just uh-huh. meeting them for the first time, but the friends, you know, I don't know. Just, so, uh, to, to kind of move move forward with you, uh, I mean, it's been re- well chronicled. Uh, you, you battled drug and alcohol addiction. You spent 10 years in prison, which is why you came on the scene late. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people that I, I know that I've heard are surprised. They, they said, well, you know, Johnny Cash has got this grandson. We never even heard of him. And, and, and oh, by the way, man, this guy is an amazing singer and, and he's got a lot to say. How were you able to get back to music after you'd gone through all those trials and uh, how are you able to now forge the path that you're on? Well, I started out in music. You know, I mm-hmm. I was in a couple of bands when I was in high school and junior high, high school and all that. And even afterwards. And then uh, in my early 20s, I think I was 21. I went to him and, and I had gone and he gave me free reign of his of his studio as long as nobody else was in there. And and uh, I had gone in and made a I made a demo stick song demo that I was really proud of. And I took it to him and, you know, I'd, I'd already had, I've, I've had substance abuse problems since I was sixth grade, you know? Um, so that was already an issue. And when I went to him and said, you know, this is, and, and he listened to it and he agreed, it was good. It was really good. But I think that between him and my grandmother, Vivian, I think that they, uh, uh, had t- had talked because when she heard it, she cried. She just cried. She was like, please don't get into music. Please don't do that. Um, you don't know where it goes. And, and at first he was, like I said, he gave me studio time and all that. And then I think it dawned on him that if that was going to be the way I was going to go, it was probably going to, I'd probably be dead in the first couple of years if things did start to work. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm grateful now that it didn't work because I know me. And, so he wanted me to get to uh, have a profession first, and I'd already, I'd already started school and gotten kicked out of school, college, and uh, tried a couple other things. And um, so he wanted me to go to the police academy, and I did. I went to the police academy and was a police officer for a couple months shy of eight years, and uh, in Nashville, and due to substances and. Uh, divorces and or divorce and stress and everything I uh, fell into uh, the amphetamines and alcohol and it and it ruined my it ruined my career I resigned after eight, you know eight years and kind of went in limbo for a while and depression and everything and ended up getting in a lot of trouble was arrested like first time I the first year I was out of police work I was arrested like 17 times that year I think and don't remember most of them. And next thing you know, I'm in prison and 
uh, got out on parole, violated parole, went back and realized, wow, I'm in here for the second time. I never thought I'd be here to begin with. And uh, the first time I was there, I just laid around and got fat, basically. I didn't really accomplish much of anything. Didn't learn anything, that's for sure. Second time I went in, it, it woke me up a bit. And I decided to do what I always wanted to do, which was music. And I, um, I got a guitar in there and started uh, playing and writing and, and singing. And, and I haven't stopped. I got out and hit the ground running. And it's worked out really well. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that when I first came out were like, you know, who are you? Like you said, you know, here you are at, you know, later in life. Why didn't you do this 20 years ago? I tried, you know, it's just I had a bunch of setbacks. But things wouldn't have worked out, you know, like they have if I hadn't gone through all that. So what was the uh, come to Jesus moment, so to speak, where you said, man, I, I just can't do this anymore. I got to stay clean. I got to focus on something better for the future. My kids. Um, mm -hmm. Leaving my kids for the second time to go back to prison was was terrible. That was. Uh, um, it should have woke me up the first time. Well, actually, it should have never happened to begin with. But um you know, when I I left and my youngest was 18 months, I came back and he didn't even know me. You know, and my older son, um, I had I've always had custody of him. So for me to be gone, that was that was, you know, it was it was so unfair. It was terribly unfair. And I why I didn't see that to begin with um, was because I was deluded, you know, polluted. And uh you know, I, I got I got in there and I learned a lot of lessons. I got a lot of scars. I got <laughs> got some bad tattoos. And, you know, uh, it it just dawned on me, you know, you do have a purpose. It's time to uh, live up to that. God didn't just make me to sit around in, in, in small cells and feel sorry for myself. Ridiculous. So how does what? life look different for you now? Life is excellent now. Life is great. I feel great. I'm totally clean again. Um, this time I did it different. I, you know, I got back out there. I, I, I screw up quite, or I was screwing up quite a bit. You know, I'd get sober. I'd get, you know, a year behind me. I'd get six months, whatever, and and it wouldn't stick because I still never really dealt with all of the things that were going on inside me. This time I did it different. I've got um, a wonderful woman behind me that that um, served. She kind of put her foot down and said, you know, if this is the way you're going to be, then you're not going to be with me. Matter of fact, you're not going to be with anybody because you're going to die. You know, I'm, I was going through a, you know, half a gallon of Evan Williams a day and, you know, chasing it with beer and taking this and that and the other, you know, it's, I was constantly uh, in another, another state, you know, we went, we went out on tour, honestly, after three months of on being on tour, I started making excuses for, you know, I can't get enough sleep and things like that. I fell into the whole, you know, fell into that whole classic scenario. And, uh, you know, it sucked me up again. So now I'm totally clean. And uh, by the way, I will go on a fun tangent and keep talking unless you interrupt me. But um, totally clean now I'm out here in the middle of the country. We don't see the COVID stuff. We don't see riots. We don't see anything like that. We see horses and a bunch of dogs and, and each other. And man, it's been great. We've been writing and we've been uh, recording and man, life is fantastic. You know, it's um, guilt will eat you up. Can't live, around, can't live with guilt and try to kill it every day and still get around. 
So going back, who were some of the artists who inspired you growing up? <laughs> um, mainly, I mean, honestly, my grandpa. I mean, I know that's 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 the way it was. I mean, that's where I grew up. Steve Earle. Um, always been a huge Steve Earle fan. Um, the rest of them have been metal. I mean, I grew up Prong uh, and and uh, you know Sepultura and. White Zombie, you know, corn guys like that, you know, that was, that's all I ever listened to. Helmet. I've always been a huge Helmet fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you take that and mix it with traditional country, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to straddle genres or anything, you know, but it, I think it does uh, kind of rub off in my music a bit. Mm -hmm. Who are you listening to these days? Hmm. Um, a lot of, uh, actually a lot of Seether. I've been off on a, on a Seether binge here lately. Seether and and uh, Sarah Joe has got me into a couple, it's a little bit of pop, you know. I never thought I'd say that, but I, I have uh, broadened my horizons a bit and became more more open to it. Um, but, You're in the judgment free zone here. Yeah, you know, I you know I don't care. I, if I was worried about judgment, I wouldn't be here at all. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't care at all. Um, uh, you know, nowadays. Hey, as long as you're happy doing what you're doing, you know, as long as I'm not doing what everybody else has done, that's, that's my biggest thing. I, I honestly, um, I can't listen to radio stations. I can't do all that. What they play on the radio, it, it, it does, it just turns me off. It's not for everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's country or Americana artists that, uh, intrigue you. I'll be honest with you. I've got to go in the barn and everything. We got the horses out there and get the water on for the we put a garden in. And I've got to go in there and the horses listen to country, you know, like <laughs> seems fitting. And when I go in there, I, I, Sarah Joe gets on me because I can't walk back out of the barn without making fun of some lyric that I hear in there. Something about casseroles or trucks or bars. If I hear another song about a bar, I'm going to puke. But, um, <laughs> You know, I, I can't do the country thing much unless it's, you know, like old Hank or uh, I get into old Hank, old George. Um, my grandpa's stuff, I still love listening to it, even though I've heard it over and over and over. You know, it's, yeah. there's something about it that that's refreshing, actually, uh, no matter how old it gets. Um, other than that, I mean, like I said, my old standards, like in my truck, I think Prong is surprised it still plays. Well, before we go any further here, I want to share with our listeners your song, Right Side of the Dirt. What was the inspiration for the song? Can you describe a bit about it? The song came up, um, you know, I was at my house working on another song, and uh, uh, me and Alan Sostrin and, and Derek Coe were sitting there, and we were working on another song. And we got talking about how, uh, actually, it was, quite frankly, it was like I used to hate waking up. That was the worst part of my day having to, you know, go through another day. And now it's like, now it's so much better. And on the right side of the dirt, I used to wish I was dead, you know, now it's staying on the right side of the dirt and looking back at kind of what we've talked about already. And uh, I think we wrote, ended up writing that song in about an hour or two, you know, just sitting there, uh, it just kind of came to us. And then we went in and did the video and, and uh, well, it speaks for itself. So here's Thomas Gabriel with Right Side of the Dirt. Life can bring you down 
It can make you hurt Then you open your eyes again You're on the right side of the dirt On the right side of the dirt great stuff man thank you people tuning in have never heard you before and uh they're looking for johnny cash 2.0 uh that's not your style you got a different style here and uh, we heard that rock influence that's so important to you yeah you know though i my grandpa didn't even consider himself country you know he was he called himself a folk artist and uh i kind of tend to think that you know looking at uh, american recordings and all what he did towards the end of his life and that's what he was happy doing was what he did with Rick Rubin. And, you know, I, I tend to think that uh, if he was to come out now, maybe it would be a little more similar to, to the way we're doing things. You know, it's because um, he was never, if you look at country, you know, old country, 
his old style. You know, he started out as rockabilly. He started out as, um, you know, what was then rock, you know, Elvis and my grandfather and Jerry Lee Lewis and all that. You know, he um, he didn't get far from it, really, except for like Columbia years with uh, some of the, the way they were trying to, you know, keep him in that country genre, that main that mainstream country genre at the time. But he wasn't happy doing all that. You know, so lots, I think that uh, his music is, I don't think people really totally understand what what he was happy doing. You know, he was he was not happy there for a while in the 80s doing this. You know, there was a couple of records that just wasn't Johnny Cash at all. I didn't think personally, mm-hmm. that's just my opinion. So let's talk about uh, your music here, your album, The Long Way Home. You wrote a lot of the material there. What was the inspiration behind that collection of songs? Um, mostly prison, you know, a long way home was kind of a, uh, it was more of a, uh, from birth until when that, when I recorded it, it was, uh, it was about life before, before present day, you know, there was a lot of prison in there. There was a lot of sadness in there that was, uh, you know, some really dark stuff on there. You know, there was also, if you pay attention to the, the way the songs are set up on the album, it's kind of a timeline, really, you know. So um, there's a theme to it. And, um, you know, I was I was really, really happy with how that album came out. Um, it was, I was uh, nervous about bringing some of these songs that I'd written in such a dark place and such a lonely, you know, I, I never thought, like, for instance, Cell. I wrote in a cell. I wrote it by myself in, in a, um, I got put in the hole for a little while and uh, for like two or three months. And I w- that's where I wrote Cell. And I was nervous about bringing it to the public because I didn't know how it would be received. And, uh, but it was, it was, it was more for myself than anything, sharing that with somebody, you know, sharing that with people. And luckily uh, I've got the response I've gotten off. It has been really, really great. You know, people have been able to, people have come up to me and said, you know, I just got out of prison or I've got a child in prison or, you know, and, and we'll sit down and talk and, and they're able to relate. And that's, so that's, that's therapeutic for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So as we talked about earlier, uh, you were really starting to build some momentum there on the road and then COVID-19 happened. What's that layoff been like for you? And what are you trying to do? Uh, how are you trying to use it to make you stronger uh, to, to come out as a, uh, a an artist on the other side? Because I, I get the sense that, uh, that you're really working behind the scenes to build something special there. Yeah, I um, I needed it. And I hate it for those that, it, you know, it was that it's been tragic for. But I needed it. I uh, I've really enjoyed this time off and. I needed to uh, get back on track. I needed to lose some weight, and I got fat on the road. Look at that video. You know, I was, <laughs> I was like a pumpkin in there. But, you know, I needed to shed some pounds. I needed to get back in, you know, in connection with uh, myself. I needed to uh, write. I needed to do a lot of things. And this time off and being away from everybody and, and uh, you know, we got a new puppy. And, you know, that's been cool. And, you know, we've been putting in a garden and spending time together and, you know, just cooling off because there for a while it was just hitting the road, 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 different city every night and meeting all these people. And the embarrassing part about it is, you know, and then I started drinking again and, you know, it just got to where it was just starting to spin and it was starting to get 
really loose and out of control. And now we've got, uh, you know, we've, we've come a long way just as far as my organization is concerned, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, you know, we've got new management. We've got, uh, you know, a whole different look outlook on the way the road's going to be this time. Some of that's a good thing. Some of that's unfortunate, you know, now the COVID thing, you know, it's like, you can't, Used to we used to be able to arms around each other and take pictures at shows and all that kind of thing. I just wonder how it's going to play out, but I'm excited about it. At the same time, it's going to be something to really, uh, you know, it's going to take a lot of adjusting. So, so what's your yeah. ultimate goal for all of this? Um, you know, I um, I just enjoy what I do. It's um, for the first time I don't feel like I'm doing something that I'm an imposter. I mean, honestly. I was good at being a cop too, but I felt like an imposter. You know, I didn't feel like that was me. I uh, I could go do construction or whatever if I wanted to, but I wouldn't feel like it was me. You know, I'd be, I've always my whole life felt kind of like an imposter until music, until I got back into music again. And it's the only time I feel like myself. And it's the only time I'm able to, uh, you know, portray who I really am and, and share, you know, uh, with people how I am, how I feel inside, how, things are in my life or what I've been through or whatever, you know, and make that connection. My, my biggest thing ever is, is making friends and making the connection with everybody that we come across. You know, I've met some of the, I've made some of the best friends in the last couple of years and made some of the best connections. I mean, it's just been nothing but a positive, a positive thing. I, I just want to continue what I'm doing, be happy. And hopefully uh, somebody likes listening to it. One of the things I was curious about is what, what can you describe to me what your writing process looks like? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can. I uh, have a bunch of little papers all around the house and I'll write down a line and hum it for a while and then I'll lose the piece of paper and I'll go, Hey baby, what, what was, where's that, <laughs> where's that paper that I wrote down or uh, what, what did I come up with yesterday? It's, it's really loose and uh, unorganized, but somehow it, it, it comes together eventually. I, uh, Lots of my writing is, is done in my sleep, honestly. I wake up from dreams and, and I'll kind of jot it down and later on come back and, you know, try to grab a different perspective of it, you know, a, a daytime uh, perspective of, you know, kind of putting it where, where does it come from, where what part of me brought that out, you know. Uh, my subconscious is talking to me or my higher power is talking to me or whatever, you know, and I try to get that on paper or try to get it, try to get the right melody for it. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it's really good. You know, it just, it's uh-huh. just the way it is. You know, I get lucky sometimes. Yeah. So what about the studio? Do you, do you like being in the studio? Love the studio. Love the studio. Cause when I mess up, I can do it again. I, uh, no, I love going to the studio and I, I love studio work and I love the guys that, um, that I work with, you know, it's, um, getting in there and being able to let loose and, and get, like I said, get what's, you know, all this hard work of putting it together and in, into a song and, and sharing that and trying to portray it like you mean it, you know. Um, I'm not going to go in there and sing, a, sing something that doesn't mean something to me. You know, it's got, I've got to, if I don't feel like you know it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Trust me, mm-hmm. it's terrible. So I want to talk a bit more about uh, what's on the horizon for you. But before we do, I want to share one more song with the folks here. Uh, the song 1974. Tell me about what we're going to hear. 1974 was, uh, I wish I had wrote it, but I didn't. Um, I could have. But basically, it's about me. It's uh, Brian Oxley wrote it. And he was writing about um, 
during the time that we had met and everything that I we had met up and I had told him my story of going to prison, you know, what how I'd grown up going to prison, coming back out, screwing up again and going back to prison. You know, one nine seven four is not a happy story. You know, it's it's basically a failure story. It's but it's uh you know, about how this guy is, you know, just keeps failing and keeps failing. And at the time, that's exactly where I was. When I sang that song, I had just gotten out and got, got through my first part of rehab. And uh, 1974 was the first song we recorded on the album on uh, on Long Way Home. And I did that one probably a good six months before all the others. And uh, mm-hmm. we had gone in and, and it, it was a disaster. And we went back in a couple of days later and it came out, it came out. Like well, actually, I think we kept a second take. So there you go. And Brian Oxley, uh, being the guy who purchased uh, your grandfather's farm down there in Banaqua, and yeah. uh, a guy I understand uh, has had a tremendous impact on uh, on setting you uh, on this course you're on now. Yeah, he, um, you know, he came to me. I, I was in a, uh, not to make a long story even longer, but I was in a motel room basically. Uh, snorting everything I could get up my nose and drinking everything I could get down and had said, I'm, I'm not going to make it out of this motel room. This is, this is it. I'm tired of being miserable, you know, and, and I'd pace back and forth all night. And, and finally I got this minute of clarity and I prayed, I was like, you know, God, if this is, if this, let this be it, either let me die in my sleep or let something profound happen. And the phone rang, it was my mother. And at the time we weren't even speaking. And, uh, and she said, there's a man that wants to talk to you. And I hung up on her and she called again, tried to tell me this. And I said, I wasn't interested, hung up. Third time he called in and said, the first thing out of his mouth was, I think you're going to die. And I said, okay, well, you got my attention. So we met the next day and he said, look, um, you know, I've been researching your family and everything. You're, you're, you're MIA. Um, tell me more about you and what do you want out of life? And I said, I want my music. And he said, well, if I help you get there, were you, you going to take advantage of it or are you going to do something with it? And um, luckily I did something with it. Under the yellow moon, they all watched as he walked on by. Past every front porch along Main Street, everybody felt just fine. He heard the whispers on the wind, ain't it a shame he'll never change, never change, never change. But every village needs a fool and every sinner needs someone to blame. They sent him back to Hickman County, where they never call you what you were before. Goodbye, number 1974. Fifteen summers came and went before he blew back in. But home just wasn't home, the ground was hard and the air was thin. They heard the sirens on the wind, ain't it a shame he'll never change, never change, never change. 
But every village needs a fool And every sinner needs someone to blame Seems we have a guest They sent him back to Hickman County Where they never call you what you were before Goodbye number 1974 Over the years the story faded and the legend grew Old 1974, they all love to look down on you I'd like to think you know the hand that you were dealt Ain't in the shame, they'll never change, never change But every village needs a fool And every sinner needs someone to blame They sent him back to Hickman County Where they never call you what you were before Goodbye number 1974 So uh, 2021, uh, being told by uh, by your folks that uh, you got a lot of big things in the works there. Uh, wh- where are things headed for you in 2021? We've got uh, we're working on a world tour, so um, we've got uh, lots of dates booked and uh, some really big things, some exciting things. Um, you know, I I just hope that uh, you know who, who knows, man, this COVID thing and the way things are. I uh, I hope for the best, but mm-hmm. you know if it doesn't happen, you know, cool, we can do this again. You know, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I'm not, not going to stress it either way. Honestly, I I hope we get a, get around, and I hope that we I get to play for everybody, and I hope that everybody this all works out wonderful. You know, and I pray it does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, if it doesn't, you know, what are we going to do? Do you enjoy just sitting around and ju- just playing and singing? Do I enjoy just sitting around? Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, lot. I enjoy sitting uh, around a whole lot. No, uh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I sit around and play quite a bit. Uh, Sarah Jo, she, she's an excellent musician, you know, she's way better than me. So she, um, she tends to kind of push me along a little bit, a little bit more than I normally would. So that's a, that's a help. Um, work on cars, motorcycles and stuff like that. And, you know, um, you know, I, that's that's when some of the best songs come to me, really, honestly, sleeping and when I'm doing something else, you know, when I'm getting my hands dirty and, and greasy and stuff like that, you know, underneath the truck is I'll be trying to look for a Sharpie or something to write something down, you know. It's <laughs> when you sit back and look at everything that's unfolding right now in, in, the, in the country and uh, uh, it seems like some of it doesn't seem altogether that much different from uh, what you uh, kind of inspired your grandfather during his career. When you think back to, you know, 
know, like the 60s and the 70s. And I don't think you have to look back any farther than the song Man in Black or Folsom or San Quentin yeah. to, to see how he felt about the disenfranchised. What do you think he'd feel about the uh, state of things today? And uh, do you see yourself ever playing a similar role of uh, being kind of a voice for the voiceless? No, I uh, mm -hmm. There's a that's where you know I think he and I have some really similar views on things, and I don't voice them much. The thing is, I'm in entertainment, you know, and my job is to is to uh, kind of get people's minds off of it. I think he was way wiser than me. He was uh, not a convicted felon for one, uh, and which I am. Um, you know, I I think that in this day and time, my job is to basically. Uh, bring them music so you can forget, or not you, I'm just saying, so people can forget about what is going on out there. It's not my job to, to voice politics, you know, my, my opinions on politics, religion, and stuff like that. That's yeah. for me to, you know, that's for me to deal with, with, you know, with, on my own and with my creator, you know. I think that, uh, I think that my job is to do what's expected of me, which is bring new music out, and somebody can listen to one of my songs and forget that there's people rioting, there's forget that there's people letting them out and forget that there's uh this and that and the other going on you know i i don't hate anybody and i don't you know i i'm not gonna go smash windows but then again i'm not gonna tell anybody they can't you know i mean people are like you know well if you don't if you don't stand up for what you believe in all you're doing is you know what no it's not it just means i'm gonna be less annoying than the next guy i'm gonna let him do that for me you know i'm I'm just here to bring songs and hopefully you guys like them. You know, that's it. That's, yeah. I, I, I think it's kind of pompous for me to think that I've got a, a place for me, like, like my opinion should be out there so you can listen to it and you can follow my opinion. I think that's, that's crazy. <laughs> I know social media is kind of a, uh, uh, social media is kind of a necessary evil to promote uh, music, but do you uh, personally uh, get into it? Do you get down that rabbit trail of actually paying attention to what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, we'll, we watch, we'll watch the, the news at night and I'll watch it just long enough for me to turn around and go, nah, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I gotta go do something else. I'm not going to sit there and write about that. You know, I, I love how, I don't know. I'm not jumping on that bandwagon, man. I'm not. I'm not going to sit around and write songs about stuff. This stuff, you know. I'm yeah. not going to. I'm not going to do a after COVID tour. I'm not going to do, you know, all this kind of thing. And forget about it, man. I, I'm not here to where you know. I I watch. You know, the, the the most exciting thing is me watching one of the dogs chase one of the horses. You know, it's. I'm not. I'm not getting involved. I'm not doing it. I refuse. Well, I can tell you. Just sitting here watching you, uh, just doing this interview, you look like you're at peace there. Man, I am. This is the best. I'm telling you right now, this is the best my life has ever been. And it's not, nothing I've been on my own, really. You know, I've, I've for once, you know, the thing about it is everybody's like, oh, Thomas, you're doing so great now. No, I'm just doing what everybody else that knew what to do in the first place is doing. <laughs> was doing you know? It's like, I'm the one that went off on this trail. I'm just back doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I mean, yeah. not like I deserve anybody clapping for me or anything or patting me on the back. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing now, you know? Well, this has certainly been a great time, Thomas. And I want everybody to go check out thomasgabrielofficial.com. Get his music and check out all his merch on there. And then I want you to head over to his YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe so you don't uh, miss anything that he's releasing. That's right. Anything I missed there? No, I, uh, man, I've, 
I've got some of the best, for lack of a better word, fans. I like to call them friends, but I've got some of the best friends in the world. And I, I'm telling you, I've, I've got some really great supporters, and I want to thank everybody and thank you as well. Um, uh, no problem. Anytime, I'm, I'm always up to talk. So. Yeah, I'm going to let you uh, get, get back to uh, uh, peace and quiet here. But, Thomas, I really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be a guest on the show here. And, uh, man, your family on here, you're, you're welcome on here anytime you want to be on here. Anytime you want to call, Brent, I'm here. I'm here ready for it. Thanks a lot. Well, before we get out of here this week, I want to send a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. COVID has had them down for a bit, but they plan to reopen June 15th. And I hope that when you're in Nashville, you'll go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, they'll find it for you. And don't forget, if you're in agriculture and you're listening, head on over to FastLine.com and check out our equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region it's still being delivered straight to your door and we want to thank everyone out there for listening this week and remember if you haven't already done so please subscribe to the fast line fast track podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and add our spotify playlist to your library for music from past current and upcoming guests of the show also be sure to hit us up on all the socials facebook twitter instagram linkedin and youtube until next time it's brent adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend you've been listening to fast line fast track presented by fast line media group to learn more about fast line's customer focused marketing solutions visit fastlinemediagroup.com and check out our brand websites fastline.com BigAg.com and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. <laughs>